0: We were brought up by a generation that choked on the idea it's impolite to talk politics. And I think that's what's created this mess we're in now. The American Centrist Podcast is here to kick that ideology straight in the face and talk politics. More so, we're going to do it with people we don't agree with. We believe in the value of honest discourse, and it's okay to disagree. It's okay to let facts change long-held ideals. That winning the argument is of no value compared to finding an implementable solution
1: found out we had a lot more in common raising money from anyone in the middle Buzz saw of, of lobbyists Think Trump is a master of get their
0: hands on nuclear weapons. Is Let's stop talking about bathrooms. Our issues are easier for people to understand. Welcome to the first episode of the American centrist. I'm your host Lou. So what makes me uniquely qualified to host a political podcast? Honestly, nothing. I'm not a journalist or a pundit, certainly no political strategist. I wouldn't even say I have a political background. What I am is an average American, and I see both sides to many of the issues we face today. I'm doing this podcast because I want to give a voice to the centrist. I want to take a moment, and I want to dig deeper to some of these questions. I want to find answers that are rooted in something more than ideology. I believe most of us are somewhere in the middle in this country. We're the silent majority— And if the silent majority becomes more vocal and active, we can force these extremist politicians on both sides to start campaigning to us, more important, to start governing to us, to the middle. And then maybe we can start solving some of these problems that real Americans are facing. Thanks for joining us today. This is a new podcast, and we're really looking forward to your participation as we develop this conversation. Though I'll warn you up front, if you're someone who thinks the left is full of socialists and the right is made up of fascist deplorables, then you'll be challenged. You'll be asked to defend your idea beyond just belief and rhetoric. You'll be asked to actually hear this podcast, to clearly hear somebody else's point. And maybe you're someone who wants to care but can't see past the noise. We're with you. I spent years disgusted with the system and tuned it out, but not now. Now, we're going to push the ideas and get into how beliefs become policy and where the unspoken and unintended consequences of ideology pave the way for ill gotten policy. We got to a point like many of you who are looking at the current situation in our country and how we treat each other and where our political leaders are pulling us and saying, there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be something that makes a bit more sense and there's got to really be a better way to talk to each other, to communicate because this race to the fringe just isn't working. So leave your ego and your bias at the door and be part of the solution because identifying the problem, that's the easy part. Cooperative action, that's a challenge. I'd like to invite you in so we can have some open and challenging discussion and see if we can't move the conversation forward because our political leaders and pundits certainly haven't. Now, we really want and need you to share your questions, your ideas, and what political topics are affecting you on a day-to-day basis. You can find us at centristpod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and of course, on our website, theamericancentrist.com. Joining me on the podcast are David Kochel and Jeff Link. Both are political consultants with extremely deep experience in campaign and operational politics and policy, one representing the conservative viewpoint and one the liberal In pretty short order, you'll sort out which side they're on, but I want to avoid the labels for just a little bit longer. To give you a little background between the two of them, they have over 50 years of experience in the political battleground. One of them was the first staff member on Bill Clinton's campaign in Pennsylvania and Deputy Director of Paid Media and Research for President Obama's campaign. The other, a senior Iowa advisor for Mitt Romney's Iowa caucus campaign and senior strategist to Jeb Bush's campaign. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me around the table. So, what motivated you to be part of this? Well, I think we need a conversation that uh, gets away from
2: the, the you know the the polar opposites that we're in right now, and what we need to do is start talking to each other and not at each other. And uh, even though Jeff and I are on the on different sides of the aisle and we work uh, on, with clients that are opposing each other, we've also learned how to talk to each other, uh, you know, with some sense of uh, reasonableness, and uh, so we thought it'd be fun to to do something like this and see if we can engage people, give people a, a bit of a safe space to talk about ways to compromise and ways to get at issues that actually bring us together and not drive us apart.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good opportunity to really... Uh, Flush things out in a in a way that's different than what than what's going on anywhere else because uh, Dave is a zealous advocate for his candidates and his causes and and I feel like I'm a zealous advocate for mine but in the midst of um, really the 2014 election I think um, we we ended up being on a number of panels together and um, afterwards we'd grab a beer or something and and talk through things and we found out we had a lot more in common. Um, than than we had originally thought and so that that's kind of what started our relationship five years ago and and we've been through uh, a number of races and and uh, projects since then and it it's sort of what's absent from everything else that's going on in politics right now people don't sit down and, and talk or they don't uh, have a meal they don't uh, engage. And we need more of that. that. That's what used to actually make things work, um, whether in the legislatures around the country or in Congress. Um, members used to actually talk to each other. That's how they got a lot of things done. And that's what's sadly missing, I think, now.
0: So in, in the lack of conversation, if you could identify one overreaching problem that, that you each see, what, what would that sort of one pinnacle be? I think it exists in the culture where
2: um, if if you're not part of my tribe, if you're not uh, if you don't understand where I come from, uh, you, you're opposed to me. You're my enemy, and I'm going to find any way I can to uh, you know take a, a a position that is negative to where you are, and that that's what I think what we've got what we've got to wipe away from the current conversation.
1: Uh, And I think a lot of it is fueled by um, this kind of primal urge for for fundraising and money and spending in campaigns and it forces candidates to do a couple things. One is every minute that they're not uh, either in front of a group speaking or doing their day job, whatever that might be, they need to be fundraising and so they don't have time to just idly talk to people from the other side of the aisle. They have to be talking to donors and that means they're talking to people who are the most zealot on their side, whether that's the left or the right. They spend almost all of their time with those folks uh, because they have to solicit contributions from them. I, I think it's really
0: had a um, debilitating effect on the whole process. Is there sort of an, an average Amount of time that they're spending fundraising in in a in a cycle.
1: Well, sure. It's uh, I mean it depends whether you're running for the house or the senate or governor. Um, but I, I would say if you're if you're a challenger, you're spending eighty percent of your time making either calls or attending fundraising events or that sort of like eighty percent of your time. Uh, basically, to run for office these days, you are agreeing to be a telemarketer. Uh, for for 80% of your job?
2: Most of the campaign committees actually track the number of hours their candidates stay on the phone each week. And so good consultants can tell you, you know, my candidate did 27 hours of call time this week and six fundraisers or four fundraisers. I mean, it's one of those things that we measure in politics. And, and the bigger that gets, the the less time there is to get to know each other and to and particularly for an incumbent who also has to do a lot of fundraising because these races start so early you know they're they're spending a lot less time doing their job and and trying to keep their job
1: right the people who are up for grabs who might support a democrat or might support a republican from time to time are not the folks that are making contributions to candidates early uh, they might make contributions later in a cycle but for for the entire first year of a two year cycle, you are talking to the hardest of hardcore supporters, base voters, and when when a candidate spends, as Dave says, twenty seven hours a week, talking to you know the hardest of hardcore base voters, it skews your whole perspective. And I think we've had it like candidates have had a skewed perspective more and more uh, over the last twenty years. Uh, just by the nature of this process, you have to add to that as well the media silos that
2: are out there now as a part of the great sorting, where we're sorting people by by age and by all kinds of uh, demographic traits, city versus rural, uh, you know, uh, coasts versus the Midwest, uh, seniors versus millennials. Uh, everybody's uh, you know kind of finds their own silo and they stay in that and candidates know where those where those folks are and we rarely get news from outside of our of our bubbles and and it's it's also been an accelerant to you know driving wedges between people so that we really can't talk to each other and understand where we're coming from so
0: in an effort to to start to to get both the people in the middle to to maybe be a little bit more vocal so that the the, the politicians start to pay a little bit more attention, um, I, think, I think what we might want to do here is find some some areas where maybe there's a little bit more common ground than we realize. I'm going to start you guys with a series of questions and, and we'll circle back on them and, and delve into them a little bit more. Give me just a quick a quick response, a quick yes or no. Got it. Now, by the way, the the, the debates have outlawed one-word answers, but but we'll go ahead. We'll go ahead and do that here. We're, we're we can break a few rules uh, <laughs> since we're in the middle. So, does someone who works forty hours a week deserve access to good healthcare? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, are all the conflicts that the U.S. is involved in 100% necessary to the security of the country? No. No. Does a single vocal candidate speak for or represent the beliefs of your entire party? No. No. We're doing I good. see where you're going with we're this. We're doing really good so far. I, I can't stand agreeing with Dave three times in a row. we got to have something <laughs> yeah, better. We're going to have to fix this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you won't agree on this one. Uh, is the U.S. experiencing a problem with opioid use? Yes. Yes. Four for four. Uh has your party taken action that you believe will negatively impact the majority of american people over the next 4 years or the past 4 years hmm that's a tough one we're going to have to dig down in this one yeah i okay. think i think right, that's one for further exploration okay let's let's identify that is there any amount of racism that is acceptable in america today no no okay should we accept school or workplace shootings as the new normal no no okay Does the criminal justice system in this country work as a deterrent, and does the system provide reintegration tools necessary to avoid going back into jail? No, not enough. Okay. So that's mostly a no. Mostly a no. Okay. (laughs) Is the issue of better medical care and the reintegration support for service members being properly dealt with? No. Medical care for service members? No, no. We got work to do there. Okay. Is it possible to balance blue-collar and service industry, job compensation and the amount of job security they need with keeping a workforce that a small business can actually afford?: That's tough. It's possible. Yeah, it's absolutely possible. Uh, how hard a line should we be drawing between the separation of church and state on a scale of one to 10 without using seven? Eight.
2: I mean, under God is in the, uh, you know, in the pledge.
1: Well, under God is in the pledge. <laughs> Separation of church and states in the constitution.
0: Yeah. So I'd, I'd say that's a nine. OK. So on a pretty big scale, we're really close here. I'm going to call that agreeing.
2: Yeah. we're, yeah, we're okay. I think we agree.
1: OK. Dave thinks the pledge trumps the constitution though. Like, we, we should note that for later.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think Lee Greenwood trumps the constitution <laughs> at this point.
0: Are most people- That's li- a joke, people. <laughs> Are most people in this country aware of the size of the U.S. debt? Uh, I think people could probably get
2: pretty
1: close to it. I, I think they're aware and they don't care. It's a big round number now. Okay. Well, it's three trillion bigger than it was before the current guy's there. Right, and it was
2: eight trillion bigger than it was before the previous current, or the the previous
1: guy was there. So, I mean, it's a this is a bipartisan problem. Well, no, it's not a bipartisan problem. Oh, well, sure, it is. Well, I mean, we we can go f- way into debt and deficit. That's that's one of the big issues. I think we need to talk about. I mean, he, look, the truth is, if you don't have the majority in the Congress, the the deficit it's a big issue. If you do have the majority and you have the White House, deficits
0: don't matter. So, as it affects the the public, is it a problem?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think as a percentage of GDP, it is not currently a problem, but we we've got to pay attention to our national debt
0: as it relates to the size of our economy. So the good news and the bad news is you guys agreed on almost everything.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I, I think the point here that I'm trying to make is once you get into these really big issues and just boil them down to do we agree there's a problem that needs to be solved across the board we do, I suspect your solutions to all of these problems are different but that's what we'll get into. So, uh let's go go backwards to the um uh has your party taken action that you believe will or has negatively impacted the the people. That you guys wanted to circle back to that one a little bit.
2: Yeah, I I mean, you know, I think there are uh in the tax cut package, I think there is a lot of um uh a lot of good things, but clearly we put another trillion or more onto, uh, onto the long-term debt uh, because we're unable as a party and, and, and as a, you, you know, the, sort of the ruling class in Washington, we're unable to say no when we're saying yes. Um, and I think uh, the votes on repealing Obamacare, while I think there are a lot of things in Obamacare that Republicans don't agree with, those votes uh, would would you know kick a lot of people off of healthcare and 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 unfortunately imperil pre-existing conditions even though almost every politician in both parties now say they want to protect pre-existing condition conditions but the but the practical effect of some of these votes that we've taken on healthcare would have would have actually um, you know removed people from a program that they're using right now and that they need
1: I would know, say on the Democratic side, the, the, there's the other side of the coin on taxes is that the Democrats nationally have for whatever reason decided we can't talk about taxes. The, the Republicans have won this issue and they campaign on taxes all the time. Uh, and As Dave points out, you know, this last tax cut bill that, that was so important to Trump and the Republicans when they had the House and the Senate. Uh, added a trillion dollars to the deficit, was hugely skewed towards the upper one or two percent of um, income earners, uh, cut corporate taxes by, what, 14 percent? And the Democrats, for whatever reason, have decided we can't talk about what a massive change this is, what huge problems it causes our economy. Uh, because we've lost the argument on taxes sometime in the 80s or 90s and we just can't fight it. Uh, this is a huge problem for our party and now rather than engaging on taxes, which is a huge tool in dealing with the economy, dealing with wages, dealing with a variety of different things, we've abdicated that entire discussion and instead we're embracing things like free college, free this, free that. like. We cannot be the party of just giving stuff away for free and ignoring the fact that that Republicans, when they're in charge, give away a trillion dollars to the wealthy and to
0: corporations for free. So, let's get into the tax thing a little bit because I think that a lot of people saw the tax bill as, as a cut. They received a little bit of extra money and they don't see the bigger picture implications of it. So, Dave, what's your side of, of this? Well, first of all, I don't think you can. This is, one of the things Republicans
2: benefit from is that our issues are easier for people to understand. And you go around and ask the average voter in you pick any state, are you paying enough in taxes? They're going to say yes. Uh, so it's it's a pretty simple uh, up or down here on taxes. We think we pay too much in taxes as a as a country and. Uh, the, the side that's got the argument, I'm going to make it a little easier for you, I'm going to put a little more money in your pocket, is the side that usually wins that argument. That's why what Jeff is saying kind of rings true. Uh, the Democrats have worked themselves into a situation where, um, you know, there's not a deep enough understanding of what's really going on. Now, cutting the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21% isn't... I mean, first of all, a lot of corporations don't pay any taxes. So what you have to do is you have to take a reduction in the rates with an elimination of a lot of the loopholes that you know the lawyers and accountants, uh, you know, in the lobbyists together with the politicians have have carved out to find ways to avoid paying taxes. You've got Amazon, you've got GE, you've got all these huge companies that pay zero in taxes, and so tax reform is supposed to get at that. The problem is when you <laughs> when you run a huge tax bill like that, you can accomplish the simple things like the rate cuts, but then. Uh, you know, you run into a, a buzzsaw of of lobbyists and special interests who, you know, find ways throughout a, a very complicated negotiation to protect their little piece of the of the pie and, and preserve their loopholes. And so, we never really have an honest uh, debate on taxes because while we're out talking, uh, you know, sort of big picture on rates, what's really happening behind behind the scenes is per- a lot of people protecting themselves in their own territory and turf.
0: So so is there a way to to start shifting the conversation to uh to some of those loopholes possibly from the democrat side since they're not as vocal and and can't sort of suggest that people pay more in taxes is there a way to start that conversation into the democrats really digging into the loopholes so that corporate entities are paying more and taking some of the burden off off the public
1: well it's it's a combination like um are are we going to eliminate loopholes? Are we gonna Are we gonna put the rates at a place that that makes sense for the economy? I mean, remember the whole argument for cutting the the corporate tax rate from thirty five to twenty one was it's going to uh, create an explosion of jobs. The economy is going to be growing at four percent a year. It's gonna it's it's going to create so much growth that we won't add a trillion dollars to the deficit. And that was an argument that Reagan made in the 80s. That was an argument that Bush made, George W. Bush made. Um, It was also an argument that John F. Kennedy made and
2: advanced and actually implemented in the 60s.
1: Well, well, let's just take the last 30 years. We don't have to go back 50 years. Let's go back to 30 years. What we found under Reagan was, yes, uh, we were able to cut rates. Oh, and the deficit ballooned. Under George W. Bush, yes, we cut rates. Oh, and the deficit went up again. And then under Trump, all we get is a stock market that goes up, the deficit skyrockets, and uh, you know the the wealthy and the and the big corporations get a huge tax savings. Like that's where we that's where we end up. We never get the growth spurt that has been promised for the last thirty or forty years. It just never materializes go back and look at all the data it doesn't happen and the democrats have just abdicated this whole entire argument and i, I don't understand it is most of that accurate
2: well so the deficit goes up under both parties so there's a reason Wait, why he's, deficits he's, go he's he's already the, tried to skirt around no, your no, question no this is, i think jeff jeff makes a good point we we are selling tax cuts and we're not getting uh the benefit in terms of growth that, that was promised. Now, growth has been fairly robust for the last several years, and I give Obama credit for putting the economy kind of back together in 2009 after a horrendous you know, 2008 uh, and, and kind of slow and steady growth, which continues to this day. It's ramped up a little bit. So there might have been a marginal benefit from the tax cuts, sort of a stimulative effect, but but the truth is that the deficits are going to go up under both parties. One party is able to say, well, we cut your taxes, you're paying less, and that's in part why the deficit's going up. The other party is saying, well, we, we didn't cut your taxes, we spent more, and the deficit's going up, and Republicans win that argument. Um, now, there is there some hypocrisy right now? Because you know, we have a, a you know a president who said he could eliminate the debt in eight years. And of course, uh, that's not going to happen. It's going to go up a trillion dollars this year and next year, and probably every year as far as the eye can see. So, you know, but there's there's got to be some way to find our way out of this that doesn't just involve you know taking taxes on the middle class and raising them. The problem with the, with some of the argument that Jeff's making is that you know the benefits of tax cuts go to people who have more money simply because people who have more money pay more in taxes. I mean, that's part of it. We, don't, we have a, a big group of people uh, at the bottom of the income uh, you know, s- scale who don't pay anything in taxes except maybe a little bit in property taxes, sales tax, and, and, and a minor amount of income tax. But most of the Dave, taxes are paid might by even, Dave might people even who
1: make more money. might even uh, use a line from his old boss, Mitt Romney, and say, 47% of the people <laughs> don't pay taxes. So, See, we go, we go to these tropes, but the, but the truth is, <laughs> you,
2: you know, it is people who are at the top of the income spectrum who pay almost all the taxes. I'll come next time with, uh, with, with some of the data. The top 10% of
1: income earners pay over 90% of the, of the income well, taxes well, but, in this but, country. And look, we don't have to get into the weeds on, on those numbers. Um, I, I think it'd be good for me if we did. But uh, just look back to the, to the 90s. Bill Clinton raised taxes on high income earners. And guess what? The, the, the Clinton budgets were the last time that we had a balanced budget. The Clinton budgets were the last time that we had a surplus because we did increase taxes on the highest income earners. Not only did we not have a deficit, we were actually paying, we were buying back our debt from China. Uh, we were buying back bonds uh, for, for a period under Bill Clinton. And then George Bush comes in and says, oh boy, we need a tax cut. And then the tax cut, not only does it eliminate the surpluses,
0: it puts us right back into huge deficits. So with the tax cuts and with the, the corporate entities not paying much, it sounds like it, it does bolster the economy a little bit, right? If we're looking at what's happening today? The economy's hot right now.
2: Yeah. There there is a so, no question, there's a stimulative effect
0: of so is, tax cuts. Is the trade-off of the short term growth worth the deficit in the long term for, for most people. And I'm talking the people well, who are in that lower income and lower tax bracket who who maybe aren't paying as much. The
1: the short term growth benefits the politician who is in for a short term. It hurts the country. It definitely does. Well, debt hurts
2: the country long term, no question about it. Um, spending is not being cut uh, as a as a, I mean, the, the the rate of annual spending by the federal government is not going down. People think government is big and doing too much and not doing it well and it's expensive and that their taxes are too high. I mean, this is the simplistic argument that Republicans bring to the country. Uh, and then when you look at the details of the implementation the deficit is going up we're cutting taxes without reforming uh and, and eliminating loopholes so a lot of the intended effect here which is to kind of get people to pay their fair share which is probably the word we should be using what's fair uh that that isn't that's not what is happening as a result of of this whole kind of year-long conversation we've had over tax policy and the, and the and the plan that was actually passed.
0: When you're talking about the the fair share, is there a way to get corporate entities to contribute their fair share?
2: Well, I mean, corporate entities have a fiduciary responsibility to uh, save money for their shareholders, and if it's in the tax code that they can, uh, you know, take advantage of this loophole or that loophole or this scheduled depreciation, they're going to do it. And if they don't do it, they're not doing their job. Uh, and you know, so so they're they're going to do what they're motivated to do by what's in the tax code.
0: Is is the the government not doing their job by to protect the people by letting those loopholes exist? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And and what you really need to
1: do is y- you need to have the the interests on both the right and the left. That that want to deal with with these loopholes come together. They have to do it together at the same time. Otherwise, it's it's not going to work. Yeah. So finding a
2: constituency that can come together and agree on fairness uh, and fiscal responsibility is uh, is the trick. And I don't think anybody's figured out how to do the trick. Which is one of the reasons we're here
0: now. So let's uh, let's change gears here a little bit. Uh, and talk about the upcoming 2020 election. Here's my question. If you were each to give your respective candidate four topics to focus on, what would they be? But the caveat here is two topics need to be things that you would identify as having the most positive impact in actual day-to-day lives of people that maybe aren't super exciting. And two topics need to be the tentpole issues that are going to get people emotionally charged up and maybe we want to look at what their real effect is down the line. All right, I'll go first. Uh,
2: <laughs> immigration is, I think, the issue that has maybe impact on people's daily lives, but not nearly uh, uh, with the sort of hype behind it uh, on both sides. Uh, it's, it, it's going to be a huge issue in the election. Obviously, uh, the president uh, insists on making it a big issue. Second would be health care. That is one that I think will have a huge impact on people's daily lives. Uh, you know, It's a huge part of our economy. And uh, as a person who who went through a massive health care challenge just in the last three or four years, uh, I think it's personal to millions and millions of people to know that they're going to have the the care that they need uh, for themselves and for their kids. Uh, I would say <laughs> another another issue would be foreign policy. Um, probably doesn't have a you know North Korea, Iran probably don't have a big impact on people's daily lives, but the impact on the world uh, when these rogue regimes get their hands on nuclear weapons is uh, potentially catastrophic. And let's see, you wanted a fourth issue that uh, I, I would say the the fourth issue, which is not really a Republican issue, is education. Uh, and we're going to hear a lot about it in this campaign. We're already starting to, and it's gonna it's gonna draw a lot of battle lines, I think, between the parties, um, and and it's an issue I, I think that does affect people's daily lives, obviously, quite a
0: bit. Just a couple of follow ups. So you say that uh, the impact of immigration on people's day to day lives uh, is maybe not as big as they think it is. Where where are most people that you're seeing feeling like that impact is and where are you seeing it actually land?
2: Well, where it lands is in, in the need for employment right now. So you have a lot of places around rural America that, uh, that simply don't have the people to do the jobs that are needed in those, in those small towns. Um, and without a more rational approach to, uh, you know, the, the visa programs, uh, you know, the guest worker programs... Uh, we're we're not going to have enough people to do the jobs that the country needs right now, whether they're service jobs, agricultural jobs, uh, you, you know, you name it. Uh, there's there are gaping holes in our employment economy that that really you know we can't fill unless we have immigrants to fill those jobs. At the same time, uh, what people fear most, thanks to I think a lot of rhetoric that. Uh, that that comes from not only the White House but others in the Republican Party is that you know there's this horde of people at the border swarming to get in. Numbers are up. There's no doubt. There there are a lot of people trying to get into this country. Either they're fleeing poverty, they're fleeing uh, you know drug and gang violence in their home countries. They're just looking for a better way of life. And there and there's there is a surge at the border. Uh, but you know to use. That situation as a sort of proxy for, you know, my country's being invaded, uh, my culture is at risk, my town doesn't look like it used to look like. There are people using services and schools and and healthcare in my community that I'm paying for that I don't think that they're paying for, uh, and it's really creating, I think, a, a, a real racial divide in the country, um, and and I think that's you know that's where. Uh, you've got, uh, I think, a big difference between how people perceive this issue and how it really impacts them. Because the truth is, it you know a lot of places it'd be pretty hard to get a meal cooked, f- you know, without without uh, immigrant labor. It, it's pretty hard to bring the crops in uh, in California without immigrant labor. Uh, it's pretty hard to run these packing plants without immigrant labor. So, uh, you know, uh, th- these are these are jobs that that. Uh, need to be filled and need to be done in order to keep the economy going and we don't have enough uh, people in this country with with this unemployment rate, heath- either who are willing or able to do those jobs.
1: And here in Iowa, raising chickens, uh, collecting eggs, uh, raising hogs, like all those things are largely done by immigrant labor.
0: So one of the big uh, sort of arguments that sounds like it might be unfounded is that... that There aren't enough jobs for Americans, so why are we letting people in? Right. So you're saying that there aren't enough people to fill the jobs.
2: Right. If if, if you can't find a job in this economy, you're not looking. Uh, I mean, this is probably the best job market we've seen in this country in, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. It is a great job market at all levels. Now, there is a lot of disruption going on. Uh, manufacturing jobs are are changing. Some of them are going away. Some of them are just changing. Uh, it, ta- it you know when it took uh, two hundred people to you know to to build a car, it's taken twelve. And uh, you, you know it, there's a, there's a lot of disruption taking place. That said, you know we've never seen unemployment numbers like this. Um, it's been decades. And you, you know as the economy continues to grow. Uh, Th- the the opportunities that are out there are only going to grow along with it. The idea is to find ways to make these jobs pay better, have better benefits, be more stable for people. I think we can agree on that but but the the truth is we're not uh,
0: we're not running out of jobs for people to go to go work. Okay. Pay better and be more stable almost sounds liberal. It does. <laughs> okay. Uh, D- D- Dave has to catch himself every once in a while. <laughs> So uh last follow up before we get to Jeff you said that education is not a republican issue no what is what does that mean
2: well uh well first of all it's not really a federal issue um although the democratic party right now is trying to to make student loans a big issue and the access to affordable college a big issue um it is a republican issue i think in in states where you have governors who are you know really required to to manage the schools, to to make sure they have competitive pay for teachers, to make sure they're innovating and doing things to keep test scores up. But um, it, it is traditionally, you know, not a Republican issue. The Democrats are going to make it one if they want to give, uh, you, you know, for, if they want to forgive all of the college debt that's out there, trillions of dollars of debt, uh, many of much
0: of it held by people who can afford to pay it. So, when you refer to education, are you just referring to college education or K through twelve as well? Well, I mean, they're different. Uh,
2: You know, K through twelve is is a state issue. You know, very little impact from the federal side on funding uh, and on standards and rules. I think most states run their schools the way they choose to run their schools, with some federal, I guess, with some federal guidelines and help and and funding. But uh, I think what we're going to see in this election is. Uh, education as a uh, higher education as an as a wedge issue uh, where Republicans I think can can prosecute a pretty good case against the Democrats and well, what they want to do. Trevor
1: Burrus And and Dave and, and others know that the last Republican that called himself the education president was a one-termer is George H.
0: W. Bush. Uh, and and no one's really touched it since. Okay. Uh, am I- Wonder why the the Republicans don't want to put a little bit more effort into figuring out the education issue, considering it's the starting point for most of the people who will eventually vote for them. Mm-hmm. But I think I think we'll get to that when we go to a little bit more of the back and forth here. Jeff, what are your four topics? I, I've got four. They're kind of in two di- two different buckets.
1: But um, one, and and I'm kind of surprised David didn't mention this, is prescription drug prices. Um, it is unbelievable and, and you know, Dave had his own personal experience uh, within the last three or four years. I, my mother just passed away recently and just seeing the prescription drug costs um, that you get, it, it's, it's outrageous and, um, you know, we have written into the law that it's um, not legal for the government to negotiate with these companies to bring the prices down. I mean, the fact that that's the law of the land is indefensible. Uh, so that's one. Prescription drug prices, we got to do something on that. Similarly, in healthcare, we do have an access problem. Uh, there are a lot of people um, who have a, an issue accessing good healthcare and, and particularly if, if you live in a rural area, uh, you, you might have health insurance, but you can't have a baby in a number of counties in Iowa. You, you can't get mental health services in a number of counties in Iowa. There, there are a number of services that are simply not available. You have no access to them unless you're willing to drive an hour, hour and a half, or two hours uh, for, for a routine checkup or for an appointment or something like that. Um, in, in fact, um, uh, in North Dakota, they have so few... Uh, hospitals that are delivering babies that a lot of women move to to Fargo for the final trimester of their pregnancy just in case something happens and because they they don't want to take the risk of, of having to drive two hours in case um, of some emergency. So access to health care I think is a is a huge issue. You can't just say health it's too big there's too many too many options there. Um one uh, and we kind of touched on this, I, I think the Democrats are barking up the wrong tree focusing on college. I think Democrats should focus on job training. Uh there, there is a shortage of welders. Why aren't we putting more emphasis into training welders? Why aren't we Training more electricians and linesmen there there are a number of jobs that that are available that they just cannot find skilled workforce. These are very important jobs to make our economy go. They are in many ways more important than uh having a a person with a bachelor's degree in a in a fine art uh and so the the fact that we would um you know talk about giving free college or forgiving loans. Uh, for someone to get a four-year degree in something abstract that doesn't really contribute directly to the economy in any obvious way, I I think is just kind of short-sighted and wrong-headed. And And then the last item I would say is um, we have the economy doing well in certain very isolated areas, in Silicon Valley, in New York City, in Washington DC. Um, Chicago, few few other places where the economy is really cooking, it's doing just fine in a place like Des Moines as well. But if you get outside of those areas, there are vast expanses of medium sized towns in addition to rural communities that have cheap real estate, vacant uh, manufacturing space, uh, talented people who are willing to work hard and we are just not putting the energy into revitalizing those parts of our country and and the fact that we would outsource to India or China or somewhere else and ignore revitalizing uh, places where you can do things for less um, and be closer in the United States, I, I think is crazy and and we just have to have a, a nominee. That that focuses
0: on that, and that, so I, I, it's kind of two economy and two healthcare issues. Yeah, the 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 training one uh, almost sounds a little Republican. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I think, <laughs> but I, I, if if you if you went around to all fifty governors in this country and asked them what their biggest challenge is, a, a majority of them would talk about what Jeff's talking about on both sides of the aisle. Uh, it is a huge problem to try and give your population. Uh, the the training to, to handle a disrupted economy where jobs are constantly on the move and where you need to upgrade your skills throughout your life. It's not enough to get a high school diploma anymore and go join one company that you stay with throughout your entire career. That is a thing of the past. Um, and so Republicans and Democrats, this is one of the places where – I think you see state state legislatures and governors actually working together to find resources to put into programs that put people in a better position to be able to get the jobs of the future. And uh, I I think Jeff is spot on about that. And he's spot on about what's going on in rural America. But I don't think that there are enough voters in the Democratic Party to recognize that and speak to it in a way that is compelling to those voters. that's part of the huge cultural divide that we have in this country. and you know these these rural voters are voting Republican at a much higher rate than they were even 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And that's one of, I think one of the big changes that's taken place demographically. And I think Jeff is right to to try and focus on it. I'm not sure that that all the answers are there yet for those voters to start going back, to the Democratic Party,
1: no, it's true, and and the the open question in my mind is whether rural voters have switched because of Trump or rural voters have switched because there's been a realignment in our politics. I, I tend to think that it's more Trump focused than anything else. He's he's uh, exacerbated the the issue a lot, um, and he he's done a good job of appealing to rural voters, even though his policies are uh, absolutely debilitating to rural America. I mean, it, it's it's unbelievable the policy choices he makes having a negative impact on rural America, yet um, they identify with him because he is anti-elite and he is, um, uh, you know, has always been kind of an outcast in in his circles, um, and he's resentful of that. and And that is something that is relatable uh, to a lot of folks because you you get that feeling when you live in a rural community that people in cities look down on on you. Look, they're really smart, really perceptive people. They they can feel that, and and they
0: react negatively to it. and why not? They should. So, just to get a couple of follow-ups on your on your four topics here, the uh, the law that the government can't negotiate drug prices. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a little background on how that came to to be? Uh, it was
1: it was in uh, I think Medicare reauthorization. Uh, they they had to reapprove Medicare. Uh, how it operates and how it's funded. Uh, and in part of that negotiation, uh, the pharmaceutical lobbyists convinced members of the House and Senate that it would be a really good idea if they just outlawed um, Medicare's ability to negotiate prices. And that that would allow the companies to set prices and that that's, that's what Medicare would have to pay.
0: It seems like that's something that only benefits the drug companies. Yes. How does <laughs> how does a politician today defend that that still exists, or is the American public just not asking that question? Because I think everybody recognizes that we're spending too much on prescription drugs. Yeah, I don't know anybody who's thrilled about buying there. Yeah. Well, I, look,
1: this is this is where I think Trump is a master of distraction. Uh, he's he's busy talking about anything but what's really going on in the government. Uh, he he promised to do something about prescription drug prices. He had a Republican House and a Republican Senate. They did nothing. They could have repealed this, but it it was Republicans that, that passed this. So it, it, it's unconscionable that, that it's still the law. And look, there's a reason why drugs are cheaper in Canada. They don't have a similar law. By the way, it's the same company selling in Canada as selling in the United States that's just the Canadian government gets to
0: negotiate price and the U.S. government does not. Which is a topic we've seen in the news enough that it seems like most people should be aware that they can buy things cheaper in Canada. There are people who go to Canada to buy things. Mm-hmm. How do we sort of sort of uh, push the American public towards being concerned enough about this issue that's really hitting them in the pocket? for them to actually get the politicians well, to do something.
1: I I think for for just speaking on the on the democratic side of this, uh, we have to stop taking the bait on issues that that don't really matter in terms of the pocketbook of of Americans, right? If we really want to focus on pocketbook issues, let's stop talking about bathrooms. Let's stop talking about all the crazy things that Trump says. Let's focus on, okay, how do we really bring down expenses to your household? How do we provide opportunities for jobs that pay more? And oh, how do we deal with the government that's spending like drunken sailors? Like, Those are the issues that Democrats need to return to and we get distracted by all sorts of nonsense. Well, I think on drug prices
2: specifically, uh, we'd all benefit from some transparency. And when you compare the Canadian healthcare system, which is a government monopoly provided service to 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 all their citizens, uh, you know, of course, they have a ability to negotiate down drug prices. When you take that same system and you project it onto the United States, which is much bigger, much more diverse and complex of a system, um, you you have to we have to have a more honest conversation about where we're going, uh, because the the Bernie message is. Is going to be a loser. Uh, he, you know, he he rails against drug companies, and people get fired up about that. He wants to get all the profits out of. He, he wants to eliminate the private health insurance industry, um, and and basically go to a completely government controlled system, and that scares a lot of people who rely on the current system, and who aren't prepared to to sign up for a huge jump. To a completely different system that they don't understand, that they know will cost a, a fortune, um, and although I think he argues it fairly effectively, that the the fact is it's it's not going to fly in a general election to ad, advocate for the elimination of the of the health insurance industry and to go to you know a government run completely government run system, um, and so we, we it gets down to semantics again. I think we could. There's a lot we could do on drug prices. Transparency would help a lot. People don't know what they pay for drugs. Uh, You know, their insurance company covers it. Uh, The numbers, when I was, when I was receiving treatment over the last three and a half years for leukemia, the 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 bills that would come were so huge and complicated. uh, You know, and and all I knew is I was writing my premium check every month, Um, and. You know, if but if if you know the market works, uh, if it's given a chance to work, what what's happened in Washington is there really isn't a a drug market that actually rationally controls prices so that people can compare this company and that company. And there's also it's a lot because of, it's illegal, stu- right? And there's a lot of stuff that's going on with these companies as well, where they're 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 engaging in a lot of anti-competitive behavior, uh, so that they can you know control. Uh, drug prices way beyond their patents uh, expiration, and generics are, are are you know are not available at the rate that they should be. So there's it's a it's a huge thing, and and frankly it's something that I think people don't uh, understand as well as they should. And so we go back to slogans, and we have very polar opposite sides on this. And uh, you know I think there'd be it, this is one of those issues where if you could get uh, members of Congress in a room and actually have them sort through and talk about how best to get drug prices down. They could probably figure it out, but right now each side is using it as a cudgel in their campaigns, and and it's it's doing nobody any good.
0: Well, I think I think what we've sort of figured out here is there's a there's a lot of topics to talk about, uh, and. I think taking the time to get a little bit deeper on each of these topics and not going with the, you know, the the, the slogans that are flying around in, in the mass media right now, hopefully will start to move the needle. Um, so I think we're going to wrap it up for this week. I want to thank you guys for being here. Do you have any uh, last comments to throw in?
2: No, I just uh, enjoy uh, enjoy the conversation and uh, appreciate the chance to work with you, Lou, and, and Jeff, and maybe we'll find a way to... Uh... You know, give people a little life raft here in the in the in the middle of the country but also in the middle of the political spectrum where uh, where they can hold views uh, that might uh, you know that might not fit into a uh, uh, you know a specific right or left frame that they're getting from uh,
1: from the content that's out there right now yeah and the last thing I'd, I'd just add is
0: um, you know it should be okay to be reasonable once in a while I I would completely agree with that uh, all right, I want to thank you guys for being here. So next week on the American Centrist, Dave, Jeff, and I are going to be getting into the idea of "quote unquote" fake news, the art of the soundbite, and how being so invested in a belief keeps us from finding ideas that actually work. Uh, so if you've been inspired or found us to be interesting, please take a minute, subscribe, rate, share, tell your friends, and even your enemies. Make them think, and maybe they'll become your friends. But more important than our agenda is yours. Figure out what it is. Do some legwork to second guess the facts you've been fed. Look at how these ideas translate into policy and affect your daily life. Then get out there and fight for your ideas. Fight for your ideas and not the party line or what someone else thinks you should believe. Be brave enough to stand in the middle. That's it for The American Centrist and we'll see you next week.